the message this evening is when good enough isn't good enough. And I suppose the background for this is commitment that Gary mentioned and, and also uh, central to love, this, this campaign that we're entering into uh, to help us meet some needs, important needs of our church and remove some obstacles to growth. 2 Kings 13, 14 through 20 is a strange passage. I've wrestled with it and thought about it and wondered, what, what is, what's God telling us here? What's he teaching us? And I like taking Old Testament stories and, and looking at them and trying to figure out what they mean for us today. 2,000, 2,500 years ago, yet still important for today. Y'all remember the Old Testament prophets, Elijah and Elisha? Well, this is Elisha's final days. When Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows, and he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow, and he drew it. And Elisha laid his hands upon the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward. And he opened it. And Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. He said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians in Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you'll strike down Syria only three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Let me read the next verse because you'll never hear a sermon on it. Bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year. And as a man was being buried, lo, a marauding band was seen, and the man was cast into the grave of Elisha. As soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. You've never heard a sermon on that verse, have you? You're not going to hear one tonight either. <laughs> I've got to do some more work on that one. Verse 21, a dead man falls into the grave with Elisha and touches his bones and is revived. But I want to talk about striking the ground three times and what that means for us today. Let's bow. Father, as we come before you, it is so easy to just do good enough, just to get by, to satisfy the obligations and commitments and expectations and stop there. And yet you call us to go higher and to do more and even greater calling. So help us, help us do that and be faithful in the obligations and responsibilities you have given to us in this day. In your name we pray, amen. There was a book that came out 10, 15 years ago. It was on the New York Times bestseller list by Jim Collins entitled From Good to Great. Remember that book? Good. Everybody was talking about it. He took a handful of companies and analyzed them and to see what made them different, how these companies managed to make a leap from being just a good company to being a great company. What was it about 
their organizational structure, their behavior, their strategies that set them apart from just good companies. And what this book was so interesting to me was the fact that a lot of churches were buying this book, um, trying to figure out, as many churches were buying this book as businesses, as a matter of fact, trying to figure out what distinguishes a great church from a good church. And I went to conferences, preaching conferences, and a bunch of preachers were talking about this book. And so I got it and took a look at it. And I decided that a lot of principles that apply in the business world just don't apply in the church. Because what Jesus taught turns a lot of what the world teaches upside down. Does that make sense? It doesn't work in church. Because Jesus says, if you want to be greatest of all, you've got to be servant of all. I don't know how you do that in the business world. But the, the book did make some good points that churches can learn from. Primarily, what I got from it was don't just be satisfied with being good. Do whatever it takes to be great. And that's what Elisha is trying to teach in this passage in 2 Kings. The old prophet is on his deathbed. His ministry of 50 years is drawing to a close. Only one thing left for him to do. He, he sends for Joash, the king of Israel. Remember the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom? Joash, come and say goodbye to the aging prophet. And Elisha was wondering on his deathbed if Joash alone, without his assistance, would have the necessary determination and strength and commitment to lead Israel against the vastly superior armies of Syria. They were already coming up and encamping around them. The Lord would provide the victory if Joash could provide the leadership that would be required. How could Elisha encourage Joash while at the same time test the mettle of his character, his determination, his faithfulness, his commitment? Joash comes into the room where Elisha is on his deathbed. He approaches this feeble old prophet and he is shocked at the, the decline he sees in his old friend what Elisha has suffered since their last visit. And he began to cry. He wept as he thought about this vibrant prophet who stood as Israel's protector and guide and how Elisha had, had steered Joash through so many difficulties and hardships of the past. He led Israel's chariots and horsemen in battle against their enemies. And that's why Joash calls out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and his horsemen, because Elisha had led them and whenever Elisha was in front, Israel's army was victorious. He recalled all the times that Elisha had fought for Israel with spiritual power, representing the presence of God that was unequaled. And now as this prophet lay dying, Joash is going to have to assume leadership for his people, and he doesn't know if he's equal to the task. So Elisha tries to comfort him, and he says, bring me your bow and arrows. And Joash does, and following Elisha's instructions to the letter, Joash opens the window to the east, that way. And as the two men place their hands on the bow, they shot an arrow to the east. And, and Elisha said, this is the Lord's arrow of victory over Syria. It was a prophetic symbol that announced God's word of encouragement. You know, those prophets did that a lot in the Old Testament. They wouldn't just give a prophecy, but they would take some kind of symbolic action. And in that action, it represented the prophecy in, in tangible terms. 
And Elisha was telling Joash, God wants to bring victory over Syria. And as you have launched this area, this arrow to the east over Syria, that will symbolize God's victory over them. But now it's time for the test. God wanted to bring the victory, but would Joash provide the leadership that would be required to achieve it? He told Joash to strike the ground with the arrows and Joash takes the remaining arrows and he strikes the ground once, twice, even a third time and he stops. And then this is where it gets strange to me. Before we get into it, as I said, remember prophets are always acting in strange ways to proclaim their message. Sometimes they symbolize what was going to happen by using an object lesson. So after striking the ground the third time, Elisha rebukes Joash. He says, you should have struck it five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria until you destroyed them. As it is, you're only going to strike them three times because you only struck the arrow three times on the ground. Joash had failed the test of confidence and commitment. And Elisha interprets Joash's action as being limited in faith, a limited faith that will prevent complete victory over Syria. And this is where I struggle because there's a part of me that wants to stand up and defend Joash. He followed Elisha's orders to the letter. Elisha never specified how many times he was supposed to strike the ground with the arrows. Why is Elisha being so hard on him? If I'd been Joash and Elisha told me to take the arrows and strike the ground, I would have struck the ground. How many times would you have struck the ground? Once. That's what he told him. Just strike the ground, okay? Bam. Assuming that striking the ground more than once might have been presumptuous, might have been disobedient to Elisha's command to excess. And so here's Joash grieving the loss of Elisha, his guardian angel, the, the prophet that always guaranteed Israel's victory over his enemies. And here is Elisha furious at Joash for not striking the ground enough times with the arrows. What's missing? What are we missing here? Is it fair to use this instance as a defining moment in Joash's life? revealing the fact that he wasn't committed enough or determined enough or aggressive enough to give Israel victory over Syria? Is this proof that he's not strong enough to capture that victory? I think from Elisha's perspective, it was an event in the character of Joash. Apparently throughout Joash's life, he was satisfied with just humoring old Elisha without really sharing his convictions, his intensities. He let Elisha's passion carry the nation without ever really investing anything in it himself. He did what he was told to do, what was expected of him, nothing more, nothing less. But he didn't have the faith to believe in the power of the symbolic act, nor did he have the determination to provide Israel with complete victory over Syria. Does that make sense? Maybe the reason I'm so sympathetic to Joash is because of my own lack of commitment. Maybe I and some others like me are content with just following the rules and just doing what's expected. Nothing more. Maybe legalistic rituals and rules can be followed as a matter of course, but God is not satisfied with a bunch of Christians just getting by in half-hearted devotion. 
He wants the kind of commitment that Jesus calls us toward. And warned potential followers, he said, nobody who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And Jesus always challenged us to do more than what's asked, more than what's expected in the Sermon on the Mount. If anybody asks you for your coat, do what? Give them your cloak also. If anyone asks you to go one mile, do what? Go the second mile. Christians, we will never distinguish ourselves as being different from the rest of the world if all we do is just what is expected. Just enough to get by. It's when we go over and above the call of duty that we begin to bring credit to the name of Christ. And along those lines, I'm so thankful that God never did anything half-hearted or halfway. He never gave just enough to get by. When Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't just for the people standing there that day. It wasn't just for his followers who were living at that time. When Jesus died, it was for all people, for all time, who dared to believe in him. Romans 5, 17 says, Because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We're going to receive an abundance of grace through what one man did on the cross 2,000 years ago, 7,000 miles away. If we believe in Jesus and allow him to work in our world through us, look out. Ephesians 3.20, Now to him who by the power at work within us is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, to him be the glory. He's able to do so much more, but we limit him by asking for so little, by attempting so little. You remember that saying, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God? Have we modified that? Attempt small things for God. Expect small things from God because what you attempt, <laughs> you can sure well expect. When God does something like reaching, loving, forgiving, accepting, he doesn't just do enough, just good enough. He always does over, above, and abundantly more than we can ask or think. So when we sense God calling us to do something as we are now with this Central to Love campaign that's before us. So often we make two mistakes. The first mistake we often make is that we run ahead of God. We try to go too fast. So in our impatience, we forget that God is the God of eternity. We don't spend enough time praying and waiting on him. But I think in this instance, we've already done that. The second mistake that we often make is that we dream too small. We think of all the possibilities from our perspective rather than from God's perspective. So what Joash striking the ground with those arrows three times tells me is that God wants us to give him a single-minded devotion so that when he asks us to do something for him, we don't just do barely enough to get by and no more. We don't just go into it timidly. 
but we'll launch into it with such boldness and such vigor and give it our very best effort so that there'll be no doubt where our motivation and strength truly come from. They come from the Lord. We were talking to Dave Anderson one evening in a meeting, and he's the guy that's coming in with uh, our, our architect and, and helping us with our campaigns. And he said, churches need to attempt something occasionally that will fail apart from God. When's the last time, do you remember the, the, the quote from Henry Blackaby? When's the last time you attempted something only God could do? Churches should attempt something that unless God intervenes, is sure to fail. We need to depend on God to do something great. Several years ago, there was a football player named Mike Cohen. He played for the Miami Dolphins and in his retirement, he was asked to be a, um, a recruiting coach, a scout for the professional team. And so he asked the coach, what kind of player are you looking for, coach? He said, well, Mike, there's a guy out there that when you knock him down, he stays down. Mike said, we don't want him, do we, coach? Coach said, no, we don't want him. And he said, Mike, there's a player out there that when you knock him down, he gets up, and when you knock him down again, the second time, he stays down. Mike said, we don't want him either, do we, coach? Coach said, no. He said, Mike, there's another guy out there that when you knock him down, he gets up, and you knock him down, and he gets up, and you knock him down, and he gets up. Mike said, that's the guy we want, isn't it, coach? Coach said, no, Mike, we don't want him either. I want you to find the man that's out there knocking everybody down. <laughs> that's the man we want. I'm not saying that we as Christians need to go and knock people down with our passion and our fervor with the gospel, but I am saying that we don't need to be satisfied with just being good enough. God's calling us to something great. Let's attempt it for Him. Not in our power and strength, but in our weakness so that he alone gets the glory. Let's bow. Father, we simply have to trust in you in, on occasion. Most of the time, most of the days, we can get by just doing routine, getting up, going through the motions, work, school, life, responsibilities, and, and checking off all the to-do list fairly accurately. But occasionally something big comes along. And we can do it good enough. But does just good enough really bring you any glory? Does it really accomplish your purposes for us? I don't want to be like Joe Ash that just strikes the ground three times. But I want to strike it a hundred times, a thousand times, 10,000 times, if that means that you're going to give us the power to overcome every obstacle and do the impossible 
because only with you is nothing impossible. We want to attempt great things from you and expect great things from you. And so help us as a church do that in this coming month as we reach out and reach up to answer your calling. In your name we pray. Amen.